Acts 15, Acts chapter 15, and we're going to begin reading at verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word, and You have said, A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And even though uh, these two verses may not be of interest to everyone, we know that uh, they were written for our good, for our edification, for our sanctification. And I pray that uh, You would uh, open the eyes of our understandings and enable me and the feebleness of man's words to be able to communicate clearly Your Word. I pray that you would be honored in everything that is said and are the responses of our heart. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we've finally come to the last little detail in the Jerusalem Council, at least the last detail that uh, I've had any plans of uh, talking about. But. These two verses, verses 20 and 29, have been so confusing uh, to many different people. We could actually just spend the 45 minutes I'm going to be preaching on this text. We could spend all of that just talking with the different views. There's a lot of views I'm not even going to cover. Some of them are, are, are so oddball uh, out there. And as I was uh, listing down some of the different views this past Tuesday, I got a little bit discouraged because I thought if this is confusing on paper, it's going to be even more confusing dealing with all of that uh, in preaching. And uh, that's why I threw the cartoon of the Venn diagram into your outline. 
it intersects. It's, you can tell it's coming at it from a pretty pessimistic viewpoint because most of the things have no understanding. <laughs> All of the intersections of how we understand and don't understand sermons, those who are a bit confused, those who do not understand the sermon, those who understand it but realize there's nothing to understand. I love that one there. Those who do not understand it and realize there is nothing to understand. And uh, hopefully you're all in the part that says those who understand the sermon. That's my goal this morning. Uh, several times I was tempted to just pretend these verses don't exist and go on to verses 36 through 40. But I really can't. I can't because there are so many uh, strange views out there that have misused this passage to promote their agenda and besides, several of you have kept asking me over the last month, when are you going to preach on these two verses? You've wanted to see that. So let me start by showing how even the misinterpretations all by themselves, I think, necessitate our talking about this uh, so that we can understand it. One misinterpretation says that verse 29 does away with all Mosaic law except for four things. And even those only have to be engaged in with regard to when you're around other Jews, and actually this view makes the most sense of all of the views that I disagree with, but when they say it's doing away with all Mosaic law, they mean all. Even the Ten Commandments as written are done away with, so they say whatever is not explicitly in the New Testament is not uh, binding uh, upon Christians. Uh, others have been even more antinomian. They say these verses do away with all law whatsoever, both New Testament and Old Testament. And these are just social guidelines for when you want to hang around Jews who have, you know, sexual hang-ups, don't like eating blood or whatever the thing might be, and uh, that they're not really binding themselves. So there's two kinds of antinomianism, one being more serious than the other. And because none of you have temptations in that regard... I thought, I'm not going to deal with that uh, at length. Uh, we'll give a couple of scriptures later on that show this is not uh, something to follow. But there are some interpretations that are really a lot more dangerous because they're more subtle. For example, point B. Uh, there are evangelicals who believe that this is simply a cultural command for that period and that each culture will have its own norms. They say there are norms, but it's the culture that makes those norms. And supposedly, all we're supposed to bring to a culture when we're preaching is preaching the bare-bones gospel. And they speak of this as the contextualization of the gospel. And so one of these missionaries told me that when he's in America, he will, he will act like a capitalist. And when he's in his tribe in Ghana, he will insist on common property. And he would appeal to this passage as an example of cultural uh, relativism. They're being sensitive to Jewish norms. When you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. When you're in a communist country, you act like a communist. And um, he would say that in the first century, women elders would not be appropriate because in that culture, they had a totally different norm. But in our culture, he would insist on having an equal number of men and women on the elders board. And you say, well, why? And he said, well... That's what James was imposing, was a cultural norm upon the church at that time. Or as another example, uh, this missionary, uh, when dialoguing with him, he said he would be unwilling to oppose female circumcision in Africa because that was a cultural norm in those tribes, but he would be quite willing to oppose it here in America. And you ask him why, he says, well, you know, this would be very offensive in, in America, so it would be quite appropriate to oppose it. 
Another missionary gave a slight variation on this theme by imposing a form of cultural legalism. This is point C. And there are times when the relativists of point B will become, on certain issues, cultural legalists of point C. And I'll give you an example from a very famous missiologist. In fact, you'd be shocked if you knew the name of this guy. He's written a lot of great stuff. Um, I can narrow down the, uh, the scope. He teaches at um, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. But anyway, this professor has read 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 to his class. A bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And he then takes this mandate to be blameless as being a cultural standard. And he says in the first century, polygamy was not considered very honorable, uh, but monogamy was. He's wrong on that. But anyway, that's his thesis. (coughs) And um, his thesis is Paul wanted the elders to be blameless, to be well regarded in their society. That's the goal. But he says, here's a problem. There are a lot of cultures, and he named a few of the the cultures where if you were a monogamist, you would not be able to get very far in that culture because people would not respect you. You couldn't be an elder. And the reason why is because elders in those cultures had to have multiple wives. No one else had any respect. And so he said, if we are to contextualize the gospel by going into that tribe, what we must do is the church must impose a standard that says you can't be an elder unless you have Several wives. Very, very interesting approach. I'm not, I'm not making that up. Some of you are looking at me cross-eyed. I'm really not making that up. I can show you the chapter, chapter and verse in the missiology books on that. But uh, he was saying, okay, this is something that is respected. We want elders to have a great deal of respect in their culture. So they must be, uh, they must be polygamous. And you can see why I say that this is cultural legalism, because what it is doing is it is imposing laws that are not in the Bible. In fact, in this particular case, they contradict the Bible. And when he's accused of being unbiblical about this, he would say, hey, I'm preaching the gospel faithfully. And just like Paul contextualized the gospel in every culture that he went to, that's all we're doing here. The goal is that they must be blameless Here's how they become blameless in in that culture. And so you have a contradiction of the Bible. And legalism, by the way, always is going to have some intersect where it's going to contradict the the Bible. You can guarantee that will happen. Now, you might think, okay, that's a bizarre example, Phil, um, but I don't know anybody that would hold to that kind of a thing. And uh, we don't need to worry about this. But actually, this cultural legalism is everywhere. You find it in the church Uh, continually, and we might be tempted to that as well. For example, there are churches like Willow Creek Community Church that mandate uh, female elders when Paul forbids them. You might say, why? Why would they do that? It's because our culture does not respect patriarchy, and if we're going to have, you know, it's going to be an imposing of a cultural legalism in order to be respected. A mandating children's church when the Bible calls for an integrated church would be another milder example. Uh, mandating abstinence from alcohol would be another example of cultural legalism. Mandating that members get psychological counseling from other people might be another example as well. For example, I know a person who was under discipline from his church because he was willing to get biblical counseling, but he would not get psychological counseling from an unbeliever uh, dealing with these, these ethical issues in his, in his life. 
And um, another example would be universal suffrage. You know, that only started in the 1900s. The only church in the late 1800s that had everyone, every member being able to vote were the Quakers. And yet there was more and more pressures as the 1900s rolled on for churches to begin adopting this despite resistance. And the reason? It's a cultural legalism. Even without realizing it, people have imposed it. And our denomination has been uh, the same on that. So you can find examples of cultural legalism everywhere. It's not just the the weird one like that polygamy uh, example that I mentioned earlier. Um, People will appeal to a text like this to justify it, and they say the apostles imposed cultural standard. We may do so as well, despite the fact that Jesus spoke against all traditions of men when it came in conflict with the Bible. Mark chapter 7, for example. Or despite the fact that in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, I want you to learn in me not to think beyond what is written. It's the Bible alone that can bind uh, people's consciences. And so if we interpret this as a cultural mandate, then we can fall into the same cultural legalism. I think this is a very relevant passage for us, even though, you, you know, initially it may seem like a boring subject. Point D is another misinterpretation. I've read articles by Messianic Christians, and some of these are really good guys that I respect uh, in the Lord. But Messianic congregations who insist on circumcision, wearing tassels on the corners of their coats, they insist that men may not shave, they push other ceremonial laws. And after all of the weeks we spent on this chapter trying to understand how uh, you know, we're freed from legalism, how people could hold to that. But here's how they approach it. They will say, we're not saying Gentiles have to get circumcised. Only Jews do. We're not saying Gentiles have to wear tassels on the corner of their uh, coats. Of course, they can avoid the ceremonial laws. But if a Jew in our congregation shaves, we're going to get all over his case because these are things that we're imposing on our Jewish members. So they're approaching it that way. They're saying all that this is talking about is that uh, Gentiles can't have it imposed, but we can impose it upon the Jews. Well, the problem with that is that Peter, James, you know, not James so much, Peter, Barnabas, and Paul felt quite willing to not live according to the ceremonial laws. They didn't eat kosher when they were amongst the Gentiles. And so they didn't see this as something that was imposed upon them. It was an optional law that Jews could keep or not keep uh, as they, they felt. And so I'm giving these different views so you can see the reason I'm preaching on this is not just to satisfy uh, you know five or six people in our congregation who have idle curiosity. These really are relevant verses. Liberals have said that James contradicts Paul. Now, I've already dealt with that false view a few weeks ago. But they buttress their heresy by saying that verse 29 is a total cave-in on the part of James. And Paul was not pleased. That's why Paul is not shown to be saying anything in this chapter. Uh, Paul did not want even one single ceremonial law imposed on the Gentiles. And here they've got four. He didn't want one. That's uh, circumcision. Now they've got four. Is this not a total cave-in on the part of James? And we're going to be seeing that that's not the case. These four were exceptions that Paul had absolutely no problem with the Gentiles following because they did not separate Jew and Gentile. Remember, his passion was that there be united in one body, a unity, no second-class citizens. And uh, circumcision would have made that. It would say... 
Yeah, I know you're a believer, but until you get circumcised, you're not a Christian. You're not a part of the of the assembly. So uh, circumcision definitely violated it. These these laws did not. Now I think it'd be helpful if we look first of all at what this text does not mean. And obviously we've looked a little bit at that already with the five misunderstandings. But let me give you five uh, five more. First, this is not a repudiation of the moral law. And people will say. Well, it says sexual immorality. That's a moral law. And it's the only moral law from the Old Testament that is being upheld by Paul, I mean by uh, James. And uh, so obviously it is dealing with moral law. But the Greek word porneia, that's translated as sexual immorality, can refer to moral sexual immorality. That's true. But it can also refer to non-moral laws in the Old Testament, such as you can't marry your your sister, your niece, your nephew, your uncle, different things like that. If the sexual immorality is the only moral law that we have to keep, does that mean we can murder and steal and lie? Well, obviously not, because Romans 13.9 says that the commandments, quote, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, is still binding. He's quoting the Old Testament and he goes on, he says, and if there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you look at the rest of the New Testament, it's clear that he's not doing away with moral law. Some people try to uphold moral law by saying the moral law is assumed and the assembly just picked out one example of the moral laws and saying this is an example. These are the kinds of laws that you have to keep. But there are two problems with that interpretation. Uh, First, verse 28 indicates whatever those four laws mean, there aren't any more of them. Okay, look at verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. There isn't anything more than those four laws of Moses that needed to be kept. Now, if all four are not ceremonial, then we're in trouble because that means we can murder and steal and lie uh, because if there are no more, that, that's the logical conclusion. Um, but if there are moral laws that are implied, in other words, this is just a sample, then it also indicates, well, the ceremonial laws are just samples as well. And so the sky is the limit as to how many ceremonial laws you could impose as well. So it's really not a helpful solution. And by the way, all of these people are trying to come up with solutions. This is a difficult text to deal with. Some people say that based on verse 21, this is a cultural adaptation to the Jews. And there is some evidence for that. Verse 21 gives us James's reason. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So they said the only reason they've even brought up these laws is to try to accommodate of the Jews that they were working with. And anytime Jews are not present, you can eat all the blood pudding you want to eat. No problems. Go for it. Well, I have a problem with that interpretation because verse 28 calls these four things, notice the word there, necessary things. Not cultural adaptations. They are necessary things. Furthermore, uh, verse 29 gives no clue that they're talking just about being around Jews. It's just a general mandate. It says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So they're necessary. They're generally applied. A fourth creative interpretation looks at verse 20 
and says the first thing in the list is things polluted by idols, and then it gives three things that are so polluted. Temple prostitution, strangled animals, drinking blood in pagan temples. Now, I've got three uh, problems with that interpretation. First, it doesn't say temple prostitution. There are Greek words that are quite clear that would have communicated that. The second, the grammar doesn't allow the last three to be modifying the first word in that list, things polluted by idols, because in the Greek it has the words and the in front of each of those words indicating these are in addition to, they're not a subset of the first uh, word, the things polluted by idols. And then thirdly, we're going to be seeing in verse 29, he changes the order. I think that's probably the most, the strongest evidence that there are four separate things. And then finally, it is not a cowardly caving in to the Judaizing pressure on the part of James. Verse 22, if you look at that, you can see a total solidarity. It pleased the apostles and elders. Uh, that includes Paul. He's an apostle. A solidarity of Paul and Barnabas and the other delegates. Verse 23, it's clear that this letter came from the apostles. That too includes Paul. Verse 25 again affirms Barnabas and Paul. And verses 30 through 35 indicates there's a unanimous sending, a unanimous receiving of the message. So whatever it is saying, I don't believe it could possibly be contradicting the book of Galatians, which has already been written, just probably the eve of this, just before this, and it does not contradict the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, which would shortly be written. Now, I'm not going to get into... Uh, all of the nitty-gritty on this, but uh, we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner now, and people will say, well, there aren't any other options. What does this mean? And the solution to this dilemma is that the, the all four laws are the only Jewish non-moral laws that were required of Gentiles in the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament did not require circumcision of Gentiles. Now, if the Gentiles wanted to become Jews, like they did in the book of Esther, many of them became Jews, it said. Yeah, they'd have to get circumcised and follow the ceremonial laws. But think of Uriah the Hittite. Faithful believer, but he was still a Hittite. He had not yet become a Jew. And there are many uh, uh, what they call Gentiles living in the midst of the land who did not uh, get uh, circumcised, did not have to follow uh, those laws. But those people had to follow four laws or four sets of laws that are listed in Leviticus 17 through 18. Let me list them for you here. Abstain from eating blood. Abstain from eating meat of animals that have been strangled. Abstain from meat that's been offered to idols and to not marry near relatives. And the laws against marrying near relatives have been divided up into two groups. The laws of consanguinity, that would be you can't marry your near blood relatives. And the laws of affinity, which means you can't marry your in-laws, uh, close blood re relatives. So if your wife died, there's rules about which of her relatives you can marry as well. Laws of consanguinity and uh, of uh, affinity. And those aren't moral laws. You might say, well, incest is obviously a moral uh, principle. No, those are not moral laws. Let me just phrase it this way. Where did Cain get his wife? The only place he could have got it was his sister, right? It was not a moral principle to marry your sister. Where did Abraham get his wife? 
It was a half-sister. And if you look at the history up to the time of Moses, there were a number of people who married within those laws of consanguinity. See, I think these were health issues. And prior to the time of Moses, you know, you've got around 2,000 years of history. And up, up through that time, the genetic pool was beginning to be, you know, have different, what do they call, where you've got genetic uh, defects and things like that happening. And so I believe God, for health purposes, and there's probably other reasons as well, instituted these laws hard and fast at the time of, um, at the time of Moses. And I believe these four kinds of laws continue to be binding until the time of the second coming. Not all agree with me, and that's okay, but let me take a, a little bit of time to try to demonstrate how this interpretation perfectly, perfectly fits the context and the flow of James's argument. We've already been through James's argument. Let me show you how this is really an essential part of his argument. And again, I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty of the exegesis, but let's back up at least to verse 15. James says, and with this, and the this is Peter's statement that God has included both Jews and Gentiles in one body. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. Notice that James is not quoting just one prophet. He says prophets, plural. Now, last week we just looked at Amos 9, 11 through 12, because that was the bulk of the main quotation. Everything needed for our applications flowed uh, from uh, that passage. But James uses the term prophets, plural, and there were three prophets that gave exactly the same message as Amos. In fact, we could have given our sermon on any one of those passages and came up with exactly the same applications there. And so slight variations in words that you notice between Amos 9 and Acts 15, and there are variations and people have pulled their hairs out trying to figure out you know, how, how can you reconcile the two, they completely evaporate. There are no problems if you see this as a conflation of these three passages. And I've listed those for you in, um, in the outline. A conflation of Amos 9, 11 through 12, Jeremiah 12, 15, Zechariah 8, verses 20 through 23. Now, I think those are the kinds of verses that they had been debating for hours in verse 7 of this chapter. Uh, chapter uh, 15 of Acts. That's where the dispute was. Now, interestingly, all three of those prophets in the chapter where they, the, the, these quotes are taken from, all three of the prophets are looking to the Messianic age and they're seeing a time when many Gentiles are going to be saved and are going to be dwelling, it says, in the midst of Israel. So, they talk about there being... Um, observant Jews and non-observant Gentiles, and yet somehow both are God's people. And it must have been a head-scratcher for some of the Old Testament saints to say, how could they both be God's people? How can Jews and Gentiles be God's people? But that was the background that was there. And in hindsight, we can see, oh, yeah, it's a beautiful reconciliation of the mystery that was revealed to the apostles and what Peter was talking about and what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, this is why verse 19 Acts 15 and verse 19, he makes a logical deduction from those scriptures. He says, therefore, 
This is a logical deduction. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. The observance of those four laws logically flowed from Amos 9, Jeremiah 12, and Zechariah 8. Uh, one commentator, actually it's not in a commentary, it's in, a, in a, 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 an article, a academic article on this. He said this, the provisio in Acts 15.20 is not an arbitrary qualification of this decision, but itself follows with exegetical logic from Acts 15.16-18. through 18. If Gentile Christians are the Gentiles to whom the prophecies conflated in Acts 15, 16 through 18 refer, then they are also the Gentiles of Jeremiah 12, 16 and Zechariah. And therefore, the part of the law of Moses which applies to them is Leviticus 17 through 18. Now, the reason he says that Leviticus 17 through 18 is relevant is it contains the four laws that are brought up and applies them to the Gentiles. So here, here's the thing. If the Gentiles being saved in Acts are the same Gentiles that Amos, Jeremiah, and Zechariah had prophesied about, then it is logically a necessity that they follow these laws. Why? Because they are the Gentiles living in the midst of the land, and the Old Testament said that the Gentiles who live in the midst of Israel must keep these four laws. That's the kind of logic to James's argument that he is going through. And I think everyone in the first century, they would have understood that immediately. They've probably already been debating it for quite some time in verse 7. But Israel had already been imposing those kinds of laws upon the Gentiles in the land. Let me give you a brief history of these laws. First, Genesis 9. As soon as Noah gets off the ark, God gives these Gentiles a prohibition of, 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 against blood. Now, he doesn't impose any other ceremonial laws. He can eat pork. He can eat whatever he wants. In fact, I'll go ahead and read that verse. Uh, Genesis 9, verse 3 indicates they don't have to keep kosher laws. Why? They're not Jews. They're Gentiles, right? God said to Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So even though he does not have to follow ceremonial laws, in the very next verse, he says, absolutely, you may not eat blood. Let me read that. Genesis 9, 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So that was a law that applied to every human being in the whole wide world back in those days. So it wasn't trying to be sensitive to Jews. Jews weren't even around at that point. Okay, this is hundreds of years before. It's not ceremonial laws which by God were designed to keep Jew and Gentile separate in the Old Testament. There weren't Jews around. This was something he wanted all Gentiles uh, to be following. And there were a lot of laws that, that did keep Jew and Gentile separate. That's, circumcision was one of them. That's why Paul said you cannot impose circumcision on these Gentiles. Jew and Gentile must be one in the same body. Now, these laws, they don't in any way violate the spirit of that. Okay, I'm not going to look up the verses in your outline, but I, I do give several that say this prohibition of blood was imposed as a perpetual ordinance, not time-bounded for Israel. And so, if there are any of you guys who like, strangely like to eat blood pudding, and actually a lot of Germans, my German ancestry, they love that stuff. I don't understand it, but God prohibits it for all time. And by the way, this is one of the th things that I just very politely abstain from in, in China. And when they push me, I, 
appeal to this blood law because it's just gross to watch these guys slurping blood down. It's just, I can't take it. So anyway, I've got a great excuse. I have to eat everything else uh, in, in, in China, the chicken intestines and whatnot, but this one I can get out of. Okay, now turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus 17 through 18. And this is one place in the law that made special requirements for Gentiles in the land. And I want to, first of all, demonstrate that these verses really are for Gentiles. Look at Leviticus 17, verse 8. Also, you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, and we're going to be seeing the relationship of this to meat offered to idols, but the key phrase I want you to look at is the strangers who dwell among you. Other translations have it, the aliens who dwell among you or the foreigners who dwell among you. Now take a look at verse 10. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Now that prohibition of blood is repeated again in verse 12. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So it's clearly not a Jewish law. This applied to everyone. Look at verse 13. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. You can't eat it strangled. You've got to bleed the animal properly. And then comes a bunch of ceremonial uh, laws related to sexual relations and marriage. And it ends with three moral laws related to sexuality as well. But I want you to notice that in chapter 18... Verse 26, it applies every one of these laws in chapter 17 and 18, every one of them to Gentiles as well as Jews. So if there's a law in there you don't like, puff, you know, this is applied to everybody. Leviticus 18, verse 26, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. They're applied to everyone, the Gentiles who are in the midst of the land. Now, that's exactly the same language that is cited by the three prophets that Amos is quoting. I mean, James is quoting. For example, Jeremiah 12:16. the very next verse after the one that James quotes says this, Then they shall be established in the midst of my people. Zechariah 8 passage indicates not only that the Gentiles would seek the Lord, uh, but somehow they would be considered to be in the midst of Jerusalem in verse 22. And verse 23 says they're going to be in the midst of the synagogue with Jewish leaders who are teaching them. And so there's, there's some clear reference that Gentiles and Jews are somehow going to be getting along and they're going to be God's people. Uh, then, another example. Oh, by the way, I should just point out that it's not a clear revelation of the mystery because Paul said... It had never been revealed before. And James is saying the same thing here. He didn't say it was fulfilled. He says it's consistent with this. Look at his words. He says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. So Peter gave a new revelation. James is saying, you know, these three prophets are consistent with what, what Peter is saying here. 
Uh, the parallel passage in Zechariah 2 says that many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people. So that's as clear as you can get in the Old Testament that in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile will be a part of one body. Not clear enough so that the, Gentile, uh, that the Jews could really understand it until the New Testament revelation was solidified and clarified in their mind. It, it was hidden. It was there, but it was hidden. So here's the significance of James' conclusion. If what's going on here is the well-known prophecies of Gentiles being saved, being in the midst of, the, of Israel, then the laws governing Gentiles in the midst of the land continues to apply. See, we are olive branches grafted into the vine. Uh, we're, we're not the natural branches. And so this is not technically replacement theology. Many people accuse us of replacement theology because we believe the church is the new Israel. But it's not really replacement theology. There are some who hold to that. We believe Israel has never been replaced. There is a remnant of Israel that keeps getting grafted in all throughout this period. And I believe in the future there's going to be a massive engrafting of the entire nation of Israel into the one church, the one bride, into the one temple, into the one olive tree. There's one people and yet there's distinctions of Jew and Gentile within that one people. Now, hopefully that makes sense and hopefully it'll help encourage you not to castigate or get on the case of Messianic Jews who love their distinctions. I don't have any problems with them saying we want to wear tassels. We want to uh, keep the kosher laws and all of these different things so long as it does not keep you from being in fellowship, Jew and Gentile together. I think that's what was going on in the New Testament. Now, look at your outlines. And I want you to notice one more thing in Acts 15 that supports what I've just said. In verse 20, when James is talking just off the top of his head, he lists the four laws, but he gives them in a different order than Leviticus gives. And I've written down the order that James has given them in. But when it comes to actually writing the letter down in verse 29, he's He's spent some time thinking and he's ordering his thoughts according to the Old Testament. He puts in exactly the same order as Leviticus. In Leviticus, you have a prohibition of eating meat offered to idols in verses 7 through 9 of Leviticus 17. The next three verses give the prohibition of eating blood. The next four verses give the prohibition of eating anything strangled. And then the next 19 verses give the prohibition of these non-moral sexual laws, and then they're followed by three moral sexual laws as well. So there's the same order that he gives there. And I give some history in your outline. I'm not going to take the time to go through 1 Samuel 14, laws under the monarchy. Uh, they were also listed as abominations in Ezekiel. But I do want to just briefly mention that these are upheld in the New Testament as well. Now, for example, Mark 6, verse 18, has John the Baptist telling the non-Jewish king, Herod, he was an Edomite, he was not a, a Jew, telling the non-Jewish king, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, how can he say that to a Gentile unless the laws applying to Gentiles who live in the midst of the land apply? Because you can't marry your brother's wife while that brother is still living, which was the case that was happening uh, there And this was one of the degrees of affinity. If you look in the marginal notes in, um, in Mark chapter 6, verse 18, it lists Leviticus 18, verse 16 as a cross-reference. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, same Greek word porneia, 
among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Here is Paul vigorously upholding the Jerusalem council's edict. He's not upset with them. He's upholding that council's uh, views. And if you look in the margin at 1 Corinthians 5.1, you'll see that it cross-references Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 8. This was, you know, a stepmother. Now, one scholar cited, quote, the Zadokite documents, very early Jewish writings, which define fornication as, and fornication there is the same Greek word for sexual immorality, it's porneia, which define fornication as polygamy, infringement of the Levitical prohibitions and about the menstrual period and the consanguineous marriage. Well, from the earliest times in church history, that's, that's been the view uh, that uh, Levitical laws uh, 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 of, uh, on marriage were upheld. Dictionary of Religion and Philosophy says, Dirament impediment, a term used in canon law to denote a circumstance or fact that makes a person incapable of contracting a valid marriage. E.g., impotency, consanguinity, insufficient age, etc. Marriage by anyone in such circumstances is not merely unlawful, but invalid. In other words, it's not even considered to be a marriage. Just like Paul. In that 1 Corinthians 5.1, he didn't tell him to get a divorce from his stepmother. Get out of there. Okay, it's not even considered a marriage by Paul. And by analogy, you could say the same thing to homosexual marriage. Uh, you don't say, you don't, even, you don't even acknowledge it. It's not only unlawful, it's invalid. Just get out of there. You don't need to follow a divorce. Get out right away. And so the term sexual immorality, which is a, uh, the Greek word porneia, can either refer to any kind of moral sexual sin or it can refer to these these laws in Leviticus uh, uh, chapter 18. Paul also upheld the law against eating meat offered to idols. And this is one that you could have debate on. But 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 through 22. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, where it's been confusing is a lot of people don't understand the way Paul argues. And he frequently does this. He does this on Head coverings. He does this on speaking, whether women can speak. It appears like he's saying that they can hear, and then later he argues against it. Well, here he's using an ad hominem approach argument. Well, that's what he does here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he is saying, okay, Corinthians, even if you are right, we're going to give a hypothetical argument here, even if you are right and it's okay to eat the meat that's offered to idols, we're still going to rule it out because brothers' consciences could be stumbled. And I don't want you to do that. So, for that reason alone, you can rule it out. Then in chapter 10, he says, there isn't any good reason to eat meat offered to idols. He is opposed to it just as clearly in chapter 10 as the Jerusalem Council was. That's my interpretation. There are people who disagree. In Acts 21, Paul agrees with this whole decree, including blood and things strangled. Now, he submits himself to Jewish rituals. Why? He's a Jew. He doesn't have a problem with that. It's optional. Sometimes he'll follow it. Sometimes he won't. He doesn't have any problem with that. 
But the only four laws he's willing to impose on Gentiles are the four listed in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I think we've given enough background on these laws. Hopefully, you all now lie within the part of that Venn uh, diagram uh, that uh, understands uh, this sermon. And you understand uh, Acts chapter 15 inside and out. But let's, uh, let's look at some applications. I think the first application would be we must be whole Bible Christians rather than simply New Testament Christians. See, I believe without the Old Testament, you can't really understand the New Testament. You've got to have the two together. What was the authority that James appeals to when he's trying to settle this church debate? He appeals to three Old Testament prophets, which implies they continue to be a valid authority within the life of the church. We're not just New Testament Christians. We're whole Bible Christians. It is all, all important. In fact, uh, I should point out, they didn't even have a New Testament yet. There's only one book that had been written by this time was the book of Galatians. And some of these guys may not have even read it yet because just before this assembly, he had sent it off to Galatia. So what was their Bible? Their Bible was the Old Testament. We've got to uphold it uh, all. Without the Old Testament, we have no guidance on ecology, uh, who we can marry. There's big holes in our system of economics and mathematics and logic. Did you know that every principle of logic is in the Bible? Every axiom of mathematics is in the Bible? There's whole big areas of life that you don't have answers for if you don't have the Old and the New Testaments. So even though certain laws have passed away, this passage shows the Old Testament is still normative. On the other hand, there were some laws given in the Old Testament that were never intended to be binding upon the Gentiles. In fact, they were temporary laws designed to keep Israel and the Gentiles separate. He wanted them uh, to be separate. For example, you couldn't sow two different kinds of grain in the field. That was symbolic of you Jews have to be separate from the Gentiles. Uh, You couldn't wear two kinds of fabric, uh, you know, linen and cotton. Uh, You couldn't uh, plow with a donkey and an oxen uh, together. Now, there are principles we can learn that apply in other areas, but they're uh, they're not forever binding. They had to wear tassels on their garments, had a long list of forbidden foods, numerous clean and unclean distinctions. Now, the reason I bring this up is there are some people who say that the distinction between ceremonial law and moral law is an arbitrary distinction. It's not in the Bible. And that if the New Testament throws out Mosaic law, it's throwing everything out. The whole Old Testament is thrown out. They say the the law is a seamless whole. And if you accept one part, you have to accept all of the part. Well, Acts 15 says that's just not right. There is that distinction, even in the Old Testament, between the ceremonial and the moral. In fact, let me give you an example. If you don't understand the difference between timeless moral commandments and these temporary laws of separation, then passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 19 make no sense. Uh, here's what Paul says there. 1 Corinthians 7:19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Now, let's do a little experiment. If there's no difference between circumcision and the commandments of God which are eternal, then we could very easily put the word commandments in place of circumcision, right? So here's what it would sound like. Paul would be saying, Keeping the commandments is nothing, and not keeping the commandments is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. 
You can see it's just patently absurd. And yet there are many similar absurdities which would happen if we don't keep the Reformation principle of ceremonial laws and moral laws distinct in our head. So all of the ceremonial laws of Moses... Now, there are two that were changed and have become New Testament ones, baptism and the Lord's table. But the only ceremonial laws of the Old Testament unchanged come into the New Testament is these four that are listed. A third application is that we must avoid both cultural relativism and cultural legalism. Some people use this passage to do away with Old Testament moral laws like the economic laws of the Old Testament. And others use this passage to impose the cultural legalism of things like the envy and the socialism that were in that tribe of Ghana that I mentioned. You know, when when missionary would give somebody a gift of a knife or a mirror, that person could not hold on to it for more than a couple of days because everybody else would be envious. They'd burn his house down. Well, that the Bible would say that is immoral. That whole cultural system needs to be undone. And yet there are demonic aspects of cultures that missionaries completely leave untouched. They will not deal with it. They won't overturn female circumcision or other things like that. And it's wrong. It is wrong. Our church is committed to promoting consistent worldview, nation discipling missions. And this contextualizing nonsense must be overturned in our missionary endeavors. Now, there are things that are cultural. And we've dealt with that before, where it doesn't matter if you want to do it that cultural way or this, like music and different things like that. But wherever it violates God's law, then we have to draw the line. Fourth application is that God is concerned about our health, spiritually, physically, and socially. Third John 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. God's interested in our health. That's why he has enabled people to to pray for healing, you know. He's interested. Now, let's just apply this in terms of our spiritual health. We might think that eating meat offered to idols is utterly unimportant. But if we deliberately do it, 1 Corinthians 10 says, you're in dangerous ground. You're messing around with demons. You're also upsetting the Lord. And uh, what's happening is we're opening ourselves up to demonic attack. So don't think that when the president of the United States offers incense on an altar to, you know, in the Shinto temple, that nothing's happening to him. He's entered into communion with demons. Uh, Don't think when he eats a meal with the Lamai Dama that nothing has happened to him. No, there is something that definitely has happened when some of these guys get blessed by these people. And I think the kind of spiritual lack of discernment that you're seeing in the president is totally consistent with the spiritual, the demonic blindness that comes out of those kinds of compromises. So here's what I would encourage you to do. Let's let's start covenanting together to pray God would break off the, the, the blindness off of our president, off of his wife. Previous president had that too, went to some of these occult people to get blessed. And they were blessed, but it's not the kind of blessing we want, you know. It's a demonic empowerment that comes upon them, but it also puts a blindness there. And so we must not compromise God's laws. Verses 20 through 29 are given for our spiritual health. He's concerned for us. Now, I believe that the sexual laws of Leviticus 18 have more than one purpose But I think they are definitely for our health. This is one of the reasons why almost all Western nations forbid this kind of incest and this, you know, inbreeding that happens when you marry too close in terms of relatives. 
And I've already mentioned that for the first 2,000 years, there weren't those genetic problems. But as the problems began to develop more and more, God said, okay, we're going to, for your own good, uh, make these laws stick. You might think that Leviticus 18.19 is a very strange prohibition for marital relations. It says, also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. But I believe it's not only a law for health, but it's also God honoring the dignity of the woman. Now, they're not moral laws. Okay, they don't, it's not in the same category as moral laws. But these laws do show God's goodness. But application five is that God will sometimes give us no-no's that are simply integrity checks. God's saying, are you going to obey me even if you don't know what the reason for this law is? It's just an integrity check. And, uh, and I, I think we need to say, Lord, even if I don't understand the reason, I am captive to your word. I love your word. With David, we say, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all of the day. Point F is that even though Jews and Gentiles are on an equal playing field in the church, even though they're fellow citizens, God still makes distinctions between Jews and Gentiles nationally and socially. And not all, but a lot of all millennialists forget that. Uh, God still has a purpose for and distinguishes between Jews and Gentiles, even though they're part of the same body. So I think we need to avoid two errors. On the one side, we need to avoid the error of the dispensationalists. We looked at last week that say that Jew and Gentile, the church, are two separate peoples, and they will be forever, that Jews in the kingdom are not going to be part of the bride of Christ. I think that's one error we've already dealt with. But the other side is to take such a strong replacement theology that we think, there is no place in the future for the Jews. And I think that, 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 that's going too far as well. We say that a remnant of Jews will always be coming into the church, into the one bride, the one olive tree. And at some point in history, the whole nation of Israel will be grafted back into the church as well. Now, here's the thing. Even after they are grafted back into the olive tree as a nation, Isaiah 19 says there's still going to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Because it speaks of, of Israel... Egypt and Assyria, all being saved, all being, you know, a third in the land. They're God's people, and yet they're still an Israel and a Gentile. There, there are distinctions. So, uh, unity and yet distinction. And for sure, we must not have racist attitudes toward the Jews. The last application is stated well in Galatians 5.1, which says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Unless God defines our liberty, we will end up losing our liberties. It's like railroad tracks. As long as those railroad tracks are intact, that train has liberty. And that's the function that the Bible says the law of God has. James says those laws were designed to give us liberty. He calls it in James 1.25 the perfect law of liberty. And in Acts 15, James says that he doesn't want any of us troubled by anything beyond what God has commanded. Verse 24, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. When men add commandments beyond uh, the, what the Old Testament and the apostles have given, we're immediately troubled. Now, they might think these laws are good for us. They're going to keep us out of trouble. No, he says they're not good for you. They're going to trouble you. 
There are going to be problems. He has already given the exact number of laws that will give us the maximum liberty that we can possibly have. And so verse 28 says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Those four Mosaic laws, together with all of the moral case laws of the Old Testament, not the ceremonial, but the the moral case laws, are the perfect law of liberty. So here's my exhortation. We need to stand fast in the liberty that God has given to us. Don't allow your consciences to be bound by the traditions and the commandments of men, which Jesus said will actually end up overturning the law of God. But here's the other side of that coin. We must be willing to obey everything that God has given to us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And even though this uh, was kind of a a more uh, difficult passage, I pray it would sink down into our hearts that we would appreciate all of the details of how Your Word fits together. That not one jot or one tittle of Your Word is misplaced. Uh, May it give to us an increased appreciation for the inerrancy of Scripture, an increased appreciation for the Hebrew Scriptures. There's so many applications I didn't even give that it was not the Septuagint, as some people say, that uh, was being trusted here. But, Father, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures and all of their glory and their detail were being upheld. May we be whole Bible Christians. And, Father, may You be glorified with the responses of our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.